We have missionaries uh, named Matt and Laura Gass and Dan and Jana Eads who have ministered for over a decade in Tanzania and have God has used them to, to really do kind of a, a wonderful church planting ministry, but he's redirecting their paths now. We can pray for them for where the Lord would have them next. But I'm kind of bummed because I always wanted to go visit them and didn't have the chance to visit them in Tanzania. And one of the fascinations I have about that area is that they are right on the edge in a little town of Wanza, right on the edge of, of the second biggest lake in the world. Number one, Lake Superior. Number two, Lake Victoria. And so I'm fascinated about Lake Victoria. In fact, I wanted to write a children's story uh, about an adventure that takes place there. Now, Lake Victoria, as I researched it a little bit, um, is the world's most deadly lake. Over 5,000 people die every year on Lake Victoria. Storms whip up out of nowhere. So imagine that you decide to tour Lake Victoria. There's some amazing, especially the north side apparently, some amazing islands there. Yes, and you're touring the boat. You're in a tour boat and a storm whips up and you're about five miles out from shore. And you're, you're listening to the captain of the ship and the people on that ship, if they're going to get safely to the shore, they have got to listen and they have got to work together or they're going down with the ship in that storm on Lake Victoria. That's a lot like the, our Christian lives right now. We're in a storm on Lake Victoria on that boat and we're in this together. We have to help one another. We have to work together if we're going to get safely to the other side. The problem that we have when we come to the New Testament is we read many of, the, of these passages in the New Testament, we read them as about me or about I. Even when we hear the word you, we think of it as a singular you. But that's not how the Bible works in the New Testament. This is a, there's a corporate feel to almost all of the writings of the New Testament. So I want you to take your Bibles, and you guessed it, we're going to the book of 1 Peter. And to set the context for verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 4. So take your Bibles. I'm sorry I don't have a page number of the Bible on the back. Uh, in the pew back, but if you can find First Peter chapter 4, as I read, we're going to read it for ourselves, but I want you to know that the yous here are plural, y'all. We don't have a good translation up north for that. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, here it is. Arm yourselves also, yourselves, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, suffering in the flesh. Arm yourself with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh 
no longer for the lusts of men. But why? For the will of God. For the will of God. Living for the will of God. Look at verse 19 of First Peter chapter 4. Therefore, those also who suffer according to what? According to the will of God shall believe, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. It's our purpose to do the will of God, suffering before glory like Jesus. For, why? Verse 3, for the time already, uh, time already past is sufficient for you, for you all, to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready. He's ready. It's near. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Again, we ask ourselves, how do I arm myself? What is my purpose? How do I suffer with Christ? How have I been maligned for going back to my, not going back to the old way of life? How can I hope in light of judgment? The text says, y'all, this is about us. This is about the churches. We have to see that. And he gets clear about it as we come into verse 7. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength with which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We have a common purpose in this church. We are together in this. To live for the will of God on this earth even if it means suffering. We're in this together. And Peter challenges us to get with participating together during this hard road home to heaven. We need each other. And there are four key activities that we're going to take one by one in the next four weeks that I preach found here that we are to do together on this hard road home as Grace Community Bible Church united around the will of God. One purpose. And you, see, you could see them very easily in the text, right? 
Today it's prayer, verse 7. Next time it's love. Next time after that, it's hospitality. Next time after that, it's spiritual gifts serving one another. Today then we turn to the first activity of, as we strive in common purpose in this church. And we set our rudder for the fall. We set our rudder for the replanting of this church in this community. And we've been opposed by all the forces of darkness in the last two years to be right here. We're still being opposed. We're under tremendous spiritual warfare in this church. But we will not give up. We will not grow weary. We will press on together, right? We're all in the boat together in that storm. And we will brought safely together to the other's shore by the grace of Christ. But we're in it together. Let's get to work. Sometimes bailing water. Number one then, prayer. Today then in this passage, we're going to unpack it. We're going to look at four aspects of prayer that Peter highlights that I think are extremely convicting, but we can't stay there, but extremely encouraging uh, in our prayer life together. So number one then, let's look first at the provocation to prayer. The provocation to prayer. If you know what that means, that means what prods you to pray or what provokes us to pray what what gets us to pray the provocation to prayer and to answer that question we're going to look at um, the near con the, the far context in Peter and then right here in the verse to see what stimulates what provokes us to prayer together as believers individually and as believers in this church first then the far context and we read it turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and find verse 7. I'll pick on the husbands. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. This is the first mention of prayer in the book of 1 Peter. It says this, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers will not be hindered. Hear me. Men, if you will not commune with your wife, God will not commune with you. This is relationship with our wife because it's a relationship in prayer with our Heavenly Father. Or let's, let's keep reading. Look at verse 8 in the far context. Prayer is a relationship. To sum up, let's talk about the church now. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. This is talking about us, believers within the church. That's why it says brotherly. It's brotherly love. We don't have that with outsiders. This is about the church. Verse 9 is about the church. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Ah, do you realize that we are to bless others within the church and there's a benefit in order to receive a blessing from God? Just like husbands in verse 7, 
Ah, let's find out what the blessing is. Four, verse 10, the one who desires life. Anybody want the abundant life in Christ? The one who desires life to love and to see good days. Anybody want that? Must keep his tongue from evil within this church and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek the peace and pursue it. We're to cultivate good relationships here. And what is this blessing that we receive? It's relationship with the Lord. It's the nearness with Christ. Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. Look at verse 12. And His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Those who are not willing, men who are not willing to cultivate an intimate relationship with wives, don't expect it from God. Church members who are willing to bless and to love and to be harmonious instead of cursing one another, don't expect the nearness and the, the ear of God in relationship with prayer. Our relationships matter. These relationships are important because prayer is not a ritual. Prayer is communion with God. It's relationship with God. This is a provocation to prayer. It's relationship. So that's all Peter has to say about prayer. Go meditate on that this afternoon. That's the far context that prods us to pray. But the near context is found right in the verse itself. So now go right to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Let's get to our verse. And we'll see it right away. What provokes us to prayer? It's the fact that it's communion with God. It's nearness to Him. It's life. It's, it's love. It's the nearness, the blessing of God. And we don't... And we cultivate relationships with each other so we don't hinder that relationship with God. But there's not only this... Uh, we're not provoked simply by understanding that this is relationship. There's, a, there's an urgency in the context, in the near context. The text says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, therefore pray. In light of the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ, in light of the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray. Pray. Therefore, pray. Jesus says the same thing. Peter, Paul, the New Testament writers urge us to be ready for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not know the day or the hour of His coming. We can discern the signs to some degree, but these signs that we discern don't make us passive. They actually heighten our anticipation. They actually fuel our carefulness. Peter says the end of all things literally has come near. Perfect tense. It's right at the doorstep. Here it is. It's there. The end of all things is near. You see, the history of redemption, in the history of redemption, Jesus Christ has taken upon flesh and He's dwelt among us. He's lived a perfect life and He died a substitutionary death on the cross. The cross could not hold Him. Death could not hold Him. He came up from the grave. He conquered death. He was given all authority. 
We didn't stay right there. He ascended through the clouds. And as he was ascending, his ascension itself was proclaiming to the demons, mocking God in the abyss, your fate is sealed. I have conquered death. I am rising through the, crowd, through the clouds. And then Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. He sat down. And then once he had sat down, we know what happened on Pentecost, that he poured forth. He poured forth his spirit and he livened the church, gave the church power. And the word of God, to, to preach the word of God and to, to birth this church, And so the Spirit has been poured out, but the work of redemption is not yet complete, and yet it's begun, and it's step by step, and it's happened. There's only one event left, and we wait in hope for the coming of our great King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And because the end has become in the death and resurrection of Christ, the Spirit has been poured out in these last days, the end is nigh. In the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore pray. Wake up, he says. Sober up for the purpose of prayer. So, we pray not because it's ritual, because it's a relationship. Right? That's a provocation to prayer. But we also pray. We also pray because of the urgency and the nearness of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament doesn't encourage us to set dates or withdraw from the world and look up to the skies with our sandals and sackcloth and signs on the street. The nearness of the coming of Christ is a call to action. It's a call to action. It's a call to clear your head and to pray. It's a call to love. It's a call to invite others into your home and practice hospitality. It's a call to identify your spiritual gift, whether it's speaking or service, and in the power of the Spirit, serving other people. It's a call to action. In fact, Martin Luther, you never know what that guy was going to say. But Martin Luther was once asked, what he would do if he knew that Jesus would come at the end of, the, of that current day. He said, I would finish planting my tree and I'd pay my taxes. And he wasn't trying to be a smart, you know, a smart aleck. He was trying to make a point that God has called us to action and faithfulness and urgency because of the nearness of the last Christological event in redemptive history. It's at hand. Don't be dulled by the world. Don't be playing with sin, thinking you have all kinds of time. No, we know what the context says. The judge is ready. Are you ready? The judge is ready. He's at the door, ready to judge the living and the dead. Redeem the time, for the days are evil. Time for earnest prayer not the pleasures of the world. So brothers and sisters, practically speaking, let me just get to this quickly, be communing with God in prayer. We commune with each other in relationship with our spouse, 
so that we can commune with God in prayer. This is, this is not a ritual. This is not something you check off a box. This is not just, this is, this is, this is relationship. Uh, prayer is relationship. One author said prayer is experiencing awe and intimacy with God, in quotes. Prayer is communion with God when his ears are turned towards you. Listen, prayer is the blessing. Prayer is that blessing that we forfeit when we rip each other apart. It is the abundant life. It is to love and to see good days. What if this was our mindset? This is Peter's mindset. This was the mind of Christ that we saw last time. Even when the crowds were clamoring to be healed by him, he got up early and he went to seclusion. Why? To stare at the wall because he was tired? No, he went into seclusion to be with, in relationship with his primary love of his life, his heavenly Father, and to spend time with him. This is the mind of Christ. So commune with God in your prayer. And then be urgent in your prayer. Be urgent about it. You know, prayer, maybe the word prayer is a stumbling block for us. Prayer. It's a boring word to us, isn't it? How about this? Let's do something different. Begging, pleading, crying, knocking, wrestling, laboring, striving, loving, longing. Like Christ himself, who in respect to his humanity the text says, offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. J.C. Ryle has said about his prayers and my prayers and your prayers, quotes, how timid and lukewarm they seem by comparison to the crying and tears of our Christ. Let us knock loudly at the door of grace. Like mercy in Pilgrim's Progress, as if we must perish unless heard. End quotes. What provokes prayer, brothers and sisters? The fact that this is communion with God stirred up by an urgency within our hearts because of the nearness of the last great redemptive event, the hope of the second coming of Christ. Number two, that's, the, that's why we are provoked to pray. Number two then, the prerequisites to prayer. Well, we already saw that holiness and relationships, if you want to commune with Christ, you better commune with your wife if you want to commune with Christ, you better commune with this church. You can go study that later. We're not going to talk about that because right in the text, he gives us two more prerequisites for prayer. Look at it in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, therefore, watch this, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. So, the sound judgment and sober spirit are prerequisites to prayer in verse 7. Do you see that? 
So let's look at each of those two then, the prerequisites to prayer. Number one, sound judgment. What does that mean? You want to know what it means? Let me help you. It's to be in your right mind. Come on. Anybody else struggle with being in their right mind? Stinking thinking? Listening to the lies of the devil? Forgetting the promises of the Word of God? Being in your right mind. Thinking clearly. Keeping one head. Here's, this, is, this is a good Greek translation. Keeping one's head clear. We've seen that we're to live for the will of God, that we're in this together, and the will of God is found in the Word of God, and to have our thinking wired by the promises of the Word of God, that is to be of sound judgment. Number two, sober spirit. It's a little bit different. This speaks of self-control, of being, are you ready? Self-controlled, that's good, but sober spirit, how about well-balanced or spiritually observant. You know, we, need, we know what sober means when it comes to alcohol. That's a decent illustration, but it goes way beyond. Of course, it's that, but it goes way beyond that to a sense of, of where, where you, you got your glasses on spiritually. It's like 20-20 vision. You can see. You're not in the fog like we are right now in Minnesota from the fires. We can see clearly for miles right now. We're, we're aware there's a sharpness to our spiritual vision. Peter knew all about these two words firsthand because in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus went to accomplish the first great redemptive act at the cross of Calvary, he said, what did he say? Watch Right? Be careful, watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. And Jesus went, sweat great drops of blood as he cried out in anguish in relationship with his heavenly Father in prayer. And they slept because they were not able. The same is with us. I'm just going to be really brutally honest here. The same it is with us in our prayer life. We are being opposed on our prayer life individually and as a church. Opposed with all the forces of darkness, the world of the flesh and the devil are trying to kill our prayer lives. And I'm telling you, I'll tell you what we feel like. I'll say we. And you can maybe say, I don't feel as bad as you do. I feel like we're in the seventh round of a heavyweight fight and we're still standing. And they're swinging and they've connected and we try to swing and we're connected and there's a heaviness and a blurriness and a bloodiness and, a, and we just feel like we might just go down. And Peter, the coach, ding, the end of the bell and he pulls us over into the side and he takes cold water and he pours it over our head and he washes it off and he says, wake up. He's coming. The return is near. We're in the boat together. Get up. Swing. Fight. And he takes some smelling salts. And he puts the smelling salts under the nose. Ding. And we're trying to clear our heads to think. We can see clearly because it's blurry. It's real because that's what he asked for. He's commanding it because we need it. 
Sober up, he says. Shake off those mental cobwebs. Realize what our purpose is as a church. We're so drugged by the world. We're so entertained to death. We're so blurry-eyed by everything else. Peter says, wake up. Sober up for the purpose of prayer. So then just to make quick application here. Oof. Be aware in your prayer. Awareness is clear thinking. According to the will of God, a clear mind about what your life is really about, what Christ has done in his redemptive, the second coming and its implications. That your ambition and our ambition as a church is to be pleasing to the Lord. Get those spelling so open up the word of God. Be aware and clear-headed in our prayer. That's why Peter says, gird up the loins of your minds, which is basically gather up your first century skirts and start running and don't trip. And look to the skies with gray hope for he is coming. Be sober-minded in prayer. So we need to be aware in our prayer. We need to be aware that we're intoxicated by the world. We need to be aware that prayer is difficult. We need to be aware that prayer is going to take some real thinking. We need to be aware that we can fall into repetition. We need to be aware of what God is doing here in our families, in our personal lives, and in this city. We need to be aware and have clear thinking in prayer. And then we need to be alert. Peter fell asleep. So do I. My question is, what are your smelling salts? Let me give you some. Coffee. If you need a good cup of coffee, then do it. Drink a cup of coffee. Oh, let me give you some other smelling salts. Perhaps you should walk outside as you pray. Um, perhaps you should get on your knees so you feel it a little bit. Perhaps, and this has revolutionized my prayer life, Martin Luther said you haven't prayed until you've prayed out loud. I learned that in seminary. And then I started praying out loud. You know what that forced me to do? Have other people think I'm crazy or get up early. Talk out loud when you pray. Think about what you're praying. Luther said, if you can't remember your prayer, you haven't prayed. I think it's a little legalistic, but it's Luther. He gets away with it. Engage your mind and your heart. Pray out loud. What's your smelling salts? I don't know. But these are the prerequisites of prayer. Sane and sober minds, ordered according to God's will, found in God's Word. Third, the priority of prayer. The third aspect, now let's get to it, the priority of prayer. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. There it is. In fact, sound judgment and sober spirit are good things, but they're not meant to stand alone. and They're just a means to an end. Did you notice that? For the purpose of prayer. The priority is not just clear-headed thinking. And, I mean, who doesn't want good theology and good doctrine and good clear-headed? If you never pray about it, brothers and sisters, you haven't finished. We haven't. We are stopping short to know the Word of God 
And to not go to the Lord in prayer is to miss the point for the purpose of prayer. This is the priority of prayer. Prayer is not optional. Prayer is the point. It's not an add-on to your day. Prayer is the priority. All of this, Peter says, for the purpose of prayer. One pastor friend of mine said, quotes, Prayer is not pixie dust that we throw over our own works and efforts. Prayer is the integral means that God moves people, end quotes. In fact, of the four key activities that we're called as this book culminates, we're called to live out our common purpose at Grace Community Bible Church. Remember? Prayer, love, hospitality, gifts. What's the first one? The priority of prayer. And so, this is what we learned last time we were preaching. So, let's we'll say application. Be intentional. Be intentional in our prayer. Hang with me. This seems a little bit like getting beat over the head, this sermon. Don't allow the devil to tell you that. Be intentional in our prayer. If prayer is the priority, then make it your priority. We need to plan to pray. We need to get up to meet with God. Now, look, I, I could go, look, I know, I've got nine kids and there were years where my wife couldn't get up to pray because she was, you know, dealing with sickness or... But still, did you pray? Some of us need to set our alarms to pray. Some of us need, right, Brandon, to put it on our schedule to pray. It can be very helpful to be intentional here, to be, have a specific place to pray. Perhaps you need a prayer closet. Other things can creep in and they take away our time of prayer. Why is it that things creep in? Because I got a busy day. Because prayer is not a priority. Listen to me. It's because we're not clear-headed at that moment. Do you see it? We're just not clear-headed. We're not thinking clearly because the cares of this world, the worries of this world, the deceitfulness of riches have invaded our minds and made us drunk with the world and choked off living for the will of God. They've clouded our minds and our hearts. May we not be like frantic serving like Martha before we have sat at the feet of Jesus like Mary, the one needful thing. Be intentional. Secondly, be persevering in our prayer. If, if prayer is the priority, then do it. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Do it. Persist in it. Don't give up. Because it's hard. Don't quit. Take the time. Continue to pray even if the answer has not come. Sometimes your mind will say, quotes, you have important business to attend to today. Cut short your prayers. That's J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says, quotes, look on all such suggestions as coming directly from Satan. 
they are as good as saying, neglect your soul. End quotes. So we've looked at the provocations to prayer. Why are we provoked to prayer? The realization that prayer is communion with God. It's real fellowship with the risen Christ. And the other thing that provokes prayer is an urgency due to the second coming of Christ. We've looked at the prerequisites for prayer. That is to be sane and sober-minded, not fogged by the world and the pleasures of sin. We've looked at the priority of prayer, that prayer is the point. And it's the ultimate purpose of renewing our mind by the Word of God and clearing our heads is to pray. It is the point. And so because of that, we want to be communing and be urgent and be aware and be alert and intentional and persevering in prayer. And as I close then, let's go to the final aspect of prayer. And let's try to get really practical here, the practice of prayer from this passage. There's many implications. Let me give you three implications on how to pray from this passage. Let's read the verse again. Let's see if you can find them. The how, the practice of prayer. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The first one's tricky, and maybe I should have worded it differently. First, be saturated in our prayer. What do I mean? Just write it down. Be saturated in our prayer. Okay, here's what I mean. Our purpose is to live out the will of God even if we suffer. And in order to live out the will of God, we've got to know the will of God and we know the will of God in the Word of God. So we've got to know the Word of God in order to pray more effectively. So when the text says before and after that we're going after the will of God together in verse 19, we seek the will of God, that is found in the Word of God. And so when we get sane and clear our minds as a prerequisite for prayer, it's we're ordering our minds according to the Word of God in order to pray. Therefore, be saturated, brothers and sisters, in the Word of God. Really get there and hear from God. Say, Holy Spirit, show me something from thy book. Wrestle like Jacob did all night long with God until you're blessed from the Word of God. And when you're in the Word of God and your mind is sane according to the Word of God, pray it back to God. Start with the Word of God is what I'm saying. Be saturated in the Word of God. And that then leads to prayer right here in the context and in this text. I think we need to pray the Scriptures more. You know why? Otherwise, our prayers are like this. Dear Jesus, there's nothing wrong with this, but thank you for this day and thank you for the... But instead, we come to the Word of God and we, we see things from the Word of God. A few years ago, Pastor Dan gave us all a handout here. Maybe he should send it to us. I'll ask him. Ursula, remind me. Uh, Pastor Dan gave us a handout about praying the prayers of Paul. Here's how Paul prayed, Philippians 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve 
the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Does that sound like a sober-minded, Scripture-saturated prayer? Does God answer that prayer? What percentage of the time does He answer that prayer? 100%. That is praying according to the will of God, found in the Word of God. And you know what, Christian? That is what you most desire for you and others in your life. You don't really desire the raise as much as you think. You desire to be like Jesus. You really do. And that he will answer. Pray according to the will of God. Get into the book. Pray the book. That is why the Psalms are called the prayer book of the Bible. I love to pray the Psalms. We need to pray the Psalms. I just bought Ortland's book on the Psalms and I'm praying those prayers back to God. Oh, the psalm, the psalmists were desperate. David was desperate for God. He cried out after God. He was real. He, ple- he pled with God. He even complained to God. That's prayer. But he didn't stop there. He recognized his own sin. He recognized the great promises of the Messiah. And he clung in thanksgiving to the hope of the gospel. And he prayed like we can pray. Is we start with the Word of God and we're saturated right there. Let me give you a tip for your personal devotion. Start with the Word and then move to prayer. Start with the Word and move to prayer. Number two, so be saturated in your prayers with the Word of God. Number two, be varied in our prayer. Be varied, V-A-R-I-E-D, variety. You say, what are you talking about? The word prayer in verse 7 is plural. It's literally prayers. Isn't that interesting? Remember the Lord's Prayer even is not something to be repeated in some sort of vain repetition by road, but it's a model for prayer. And so prayer is to have variety. Be excited about this. A prayer can be this, right? Right, Joe? I get to say Joe because you're here. Before a big business meeting, Lord, help me. And you go in. That's Nehemiah's prayer. That's prayer. A prayer is an exclamation of wonder for something you see about God right then and there. A prayer can be a praise or a request or a confession, even a complaint. The word prayer here is variety. The times of prayer, the manner of prayer are also full of variety. Remember that this word is plural. It's prayers. Use variety in your prayer. Third, Be together in our prayer. Now, listen very carefully. If you didn't get anything else, get this. This text about prayer is written to the church. We started there. We applied it individually. But it's not even sustainable exegesis of the text. For it's y'all in verse 7. This is really about corporate prayer. Think about that. Now listen, it's written to all of us together at this church. What do you think about corporate prayer? Agreeing in prayer together. Far too often, 
it is the church prayer meeting that is the least well attended. And there seems to be little urgency. There seems to be so little priority. And I think part of it, I think it's the the leaders of churches. I mean, we're so enamored with different programs and we're busy on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And, and, And together as a church, we're not devoted to prayer like we ought. There's a simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ that we can find together, brothers and sisters, as we devote to corporate prayer. Peter's main point in 1 Peter 4.7 is to reignite the corporate prayer meetings of the local churches to whom he writes. For Peter knows, he knows that we must work together in that boat, in that storm, on that lake. That we've got to be together as we pass through the storm safely to heaven's shores. He knows that we need each other during this hard road home to heaven. He knows that we must pray together during this hard road home to heaven. And so as a church, we need to get clear-headed together. Listen, corporately, we need to assess our lives. Corporately, we need to assess our priorities. Corporately, we need to get out the smelling salts. Corporately, we need the buckets of water poured over our heads. Corporately, we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded and assess our priorities. Corporately, we've got to encourage each other more and more, all the more as we see the day approaching. This is about corporate prayer, brothers and sisters. And the evidence that we believe that this is true is that when prayer becomes a clear priority in this fellowship, and we're going to put our money where our mouth is here, and you'll find out more about this into the future, but this fall, our Wednesday night service is supposed to be our prayer meeting, our corporate prayer meeting. Instead, I preach Genesis for 57 minutes. Those days are over. The Old Testament is making the big stage, and it's coming on Sunday mornings and New Testament, that is when we're going to devote ourselves to prayer on Wednesday nights. We must pray. Do you pray? Do I pray? Do we pray? It's a fair question. John Owen, the great English theologian, warned the pastors, the successful pastors and ministers of his day, He warned them. He said, quotes, A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. End quotes. A sermon like this can make us just discouraged, can it? And we must remember We must remember that Jesus has died. He is alive. He is seated there. He has sent forth His Spirit. And our great high priest is praying. He never stops praying. He prays for you. He prays for me. He prays for us that our faith would not fail. And more than that, the Spirit of the living God that lives within us is making those, Dear Lord, thank You for the day. 
prayer's good. I don't know how. He makes that good. He turns it and he offers it based on the work of Christ. He offers it to the Father and the Father understands. He hears the very cries of our hearts and he makes it good for the Son of the living God has rent the veil and given us access to God. Access to communion with God. To nearness to God, with God. Everlasting life. The abundant life. To love and to have a good life starts now in communing with God in prayer. Don't give up, brother and sister. It's Jesus who will make it good. It's Jesus who allows you to try again. Let's go on together in this matter of prayer. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James 5. Rightly did Mary, Queen of Scots, no Christian, Mary, Queen of Scots, said about John Knox, the preacher, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men, said Mary, Queen of Scots. Brothers and sisters, listen to the words of Peter. May this be the changing point for us as individuals, as families and church family. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Amen.